Hello, and welcome to the Atomic Cast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer, uh, and I am not joined this week by Alex Roy and Kirsten Horacek. This episode was recorded live at the Pennsylvania Autonomous Vehicle Summit. Um, this was a panel uh, that was recorded uh, for the Autonic Cast. This was not, however, recorded using our normal equipment, so we apologize for any degradation of our sound quality. I was joined in this panel by Leslie Richards, the Secretary of Transportation for the state of Pennsylvania, as well as Courtney Ehrlichman, uh, CEO of the Ehrlichman Group, uh, who does uh, a lot of consulting in, in the state of Pennsylvania around autonomous vehicles and mobility issues. The idea for the panel was to explore Pennsylvania's unique history uh, when it comes to autonomous vehicles and to try to suss out uh, how that history has informed its approach to autonomous vehicles uh, in terms of policy, in terms of relationships with uh, between governments and uh, autonomous vehicle companies. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for coming uh, to the live recording of the Autonicast podcast here at the Pennsylvania AV Summit. Um, we're really fortunate to have Ed Niedermeyer here, who's one of the co-hosts for Autonicast. He's also the senior editor for mobility and technology for The Drive. Um, we're really excited for the conversation we have teed up, and I uh, hope you guys enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Autonicast. My name is Ed Niedermeyer, and I am not joined today by my co-hosts, Alex Roy and Kirsten Korosek, because they were both ambushed by something called the Porsche Taycan uh, and are currently checking that out, whereas I am here in the beautiful Poconos in Pennsylvania at the Pennsylvania Autonomous Vehicle Summit, and I am here joined by uh, two of the ladies in the thick of things here in the uh, autonomous uh, vehicle world in Pennsylvania. Uh, first, uh, Secretary of Transportation for the state of Pennsylvania, Leslie Richards. Thanks for having me, and welcome to the Poconos. Thank you. Thanks so much for uh, for coming on. And also, uh, our friend, uh, also uh, on, I think her second time appearing on the Autonicast, uh, from uh, CEO of the Ehrlichman Group, Courtney Ehrlichman. Thanks for having me. And I just want to say that Kirsten and Alex are missing out on this topic because they're actually doing what I call the eye porch. <laughs> Which is the Apple Machine Yeah. Yeah. Um, honestly, I, I, I'd rather be talking about vehicles myself, but uh, a little biased. Um, so I, I'm really excited to be here because, I mean, everyone knows that like Pennsylvania and autonomous vehicles have been sort of, you know, intertwined from the very beginning. And I think the first thing that, that I think of, a lot of people think of, of course, is, is Carnegie Mellon and the driver challenges. And, and um, people are pretty familiar with that history. Um, I actually didn't know, though, that um, there was actually an autonomous drive here in the state in early 2013 um, on public roads. Um, I, Courtney, really quick, since you were the one who told me about this, can you just fill us in a little bit on, on, on the actual history of that, what happened with that? Sure, and this was before uh, we had Leslie as secretary. So. It was a 33-mile ride from Cranberry Township, which is outside the city of Pittsburgh. It went 33 miles to the Pittsburgh airport. And in the driverless car was a driver, which is the non-driver, A-D-R-I-V-E-R. That was the terminology we were using. 
named Jared, who now works at Aptiv, Raj Rajkumar, who uh, runs the UTC, uh, Carnegie Mellon, and uh, um, former Secretary Barry Shook, and Congressman Bill Schuster, who's the chair of the TNI committee uh, in DC. Cool. And, and what was the purpose of the drive? The purpose was basically just to get legislators familiar with the technology. Um, a lot of legislators in Pennsylvania have heard about autonomous vehicles, and we have the luxury of being able to utilize the Carnegie Mellon research vehicle to actually take those legislators on rides. Uh, we also took it down to D.C. and took Congress people on rides, and to Harrisburg, where we got the governor to take a ride, um, despite his Protest. We've got uh, and what what's interesting is it was you know 33 miles and there was also a, it came through a connected vehicle test bed with DFRC and then on the highway and was able to navigate all the way through to the airport. Yeah, so I, w- I wanted to highlight this history just because I mean 2013 is like pretty early days for for autonomous drive um, being on public roads in particular. And so Secretary Richards, as, as a Secretary of State for this, uh, you know, for the state that has this sort of deep history, I'm wondering sort of has that history had an impact uh, on the state and, and has that history sort of shaped uh, what you're able to do um, sort of regulatorily and just in terms of engaging with stakeholders? How, how is that, what role has that history played in, in sort of the current state of AVs in Pennsylvania? Right, I think it gave us an amazing head start. Right, so 30 years ago, uh, with Carnegie Mellon, we had um, one of the first, if not the first, uh, automated vehicle uh, out there on the street. Uh, we were able to build on that, but it wasn't just that the technology was here. It was the people thinking about the technology that was here, right? So we know that Pennsylvania is attractive for anybody who wants to get into this technology, and so that is also putting us out on the forefront, giving us an advantage. Uh, it was great to have the chairman of the TNI committee for so many years from Pennsylvania, Chairman Schuster, and it was great uh, to have his support in, in moving things forward. And of course, my predecessor, um, Barry Shokin, and others before him, Al Bueller before him, who was a, a big advocate for um, smart transportation and using technology and um, and seeing how far uh, we could go with that, as well as their predecessors. Like I'm very well aware that I am a link in the chain uh, in Pennsylvania. I'm the 25th Secretary of Transportation here, and I like to build on the foundation. It's an evolution, and I feel extremely fortunate that I inherited such a rich and a strong foundation here in promoting uh, automated and connected technology and seeing how this emerging technology can really um, save lives who think they can, that it can give mobility to many um, people who are challenged right now and don't have so many mobility options and, uh, and thrilled that our current governor, Governor Wolf, uh, has uh, challenged us to not only stay, um, you know, at the top of the pack, but to lead in, in areas. And we're thrilled to do so and feel that we have a lot of options and we want to leverage that because we have so many testers here. We have so many people studying this. We have so many people interested and people who are really willing to be part of the conversation and ask us tough questions and challenge us. I mean, you can see here at the summit, we have hundreds of people here from so many different backgrounds. And uh, some of the, the questions, um, you know, that come at us, they're not all thoughtful questions. And that's why we're here, because we want to know where the concerns are. We want to know where um, people may have some discomfort. 
And we want to see how can we address that because we don't know all the answers. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's definitely a, a very much an animating principle of this show, right, is you have to ask these tough questions because nobody knows the answers. And so, you know, we kind of have to, you know, compare and contrast different approaches and, and philosophies. And um, I think to that, to that end, I think it's really interesting to contrast, you know, maybe the other sort of, you know, uh, center of gravity for AVs in this country, in this country is California, the state of California. Um, and they have a very different sort of approach at the government level. And I think you mentioned that sort of Pennsylvania's had this long uh, time to sort of get comfortable with AVs, that they've been on the road and people have been able to see them. Whereas in California, it was sort of really abrupt. Like it was kind of like one day they weren't there and the next day they were like, there were like all these companies everywhere. And so, and it seems to me, um, just comparing the two, that in California, um, the, the response to that has been sort of uh, a little bit more active um, regulation. Whereas here, I think you, you guys are taking a more voluntary approach. Are, are these are these things connected, or am I just making that up? No, it is definitely um, we are taking a different approach. I think it's a very complementary approach. You know, what we're learning, uh, what we're gaining, uh, we share obviously with California as well as with Michigan, with Colorado, with Utah, with other states as well. I think it's wonderful that we are taking different looks at this. Uh, we don't want to be all doing the same thing, right? We all want to be learning different things at different times. In Pennsylvania, it's been very deliberate that we um, we see policy as being more flexible. And we see the private sector as being our partners in this um, technology development. And we want to give them as much flexibility as possible so that they can mature at the right pace that they need uh, to develop. But we also understand that we have to let the public know that it has to be done in the safest way possible and that it is being done in the safest way possible. So we have come up with guidelines. We've come up with partnerships. They are all voluntary. And we are very proud that every single tester here in Pennsylvania has agreed to voluntarily sign agreements with us and to share data that is important for us to know in terms of safety. We are not asking for um, secrets. We're not asking for competitive, you know, edges to, to um, you know, to, to be released to us. We understand that that is, this is an extremely competitive industry and we want them all to succeed. Uh, but we do need to know uh, in terms of safety all the information um, that they can share. And they realize that too, right? They need the public to buy in for them to advance as well. And so it's been a wonderful collaboration here in Pennsylvania. And I, I just want to piggyback on what you're saying, Secretary. I think it's important to also pull the lines back even further and think about how the feds are looking at this. And we heard earlier from our federal speaker, Mark Rosehead, who just walked in, that, you know, the feds are really looking at different states and looking to see what experiments work. And I think in Pennsylvania, the spirit of collaboration and working in partnership with industry is very different. And I think we can we can thank the secretary for, for being a planner and not necessarily an engineer and already developing those relationships. And building that relationship with Carnegie Mellon has been really important because it's been collaborative all around the table, sort of talking about, you know, what do GOTs need to know, what, do the, what does the community need to know, what do the roboticists need to know that are designing these vehicles. And so that's just been a, an ongoing conversation for years that I think we have, we have that advantage. 
Yeah, so I really want to get into that that broad based conversation piece. I think that's also something we talk about a lot on the show, and and um, really really important uh, part of all this. But I just there's one thing that like is just bugging me a little bit, almost like, and I'm curious to just get your guys' take on on what explains this, right? So like Uber, uh, Advanced Technologies Group, they're headquartered here in Pittsburgh, right? They have their sort of the, a lot of their operations here, um, and as you said, you know everybody who tests here, including Uber, is in com- full compliance with these voluntary standards, right? However, in California, uh, you know, Uber sort of prompted the, the creation in a lot of ways, right? They were testing in San Francisco. There was video of one of their cars running a red light. Uh, that prompted a crackdown by the DOT there, uh, or the DMV, excuse me. Um, and they then sort of went to, to Arizona with traffic results. Um, I'm, it, just that, that difference in experience is so fascinating considering it was all the same company. Um, you know, is this like a, a, a local character thing, is like California, the Wild West, and people in Pennsylvania just do things a little differently? Is it, is it about engagement? Is it, is it about your office sort of engaging more or, or having a more broad-based conversation? What, what do you think explains that difference? I think part of it is, is our willingness to engage. I'm not saying, I, I don't know what California is doing with it, doing it or not, but I know we, you know, I've reached out personally. I have toured. Um, the Uber uh, Technology Labs. Personally, I have visited or spoken with um, the lead of every single tester here in Pennsylvania. Uh, I want them to know uh, where we're coming from, and, and and that we again we want them to succeed, but we in you know we intend for them to work alongside of us. I will say that the Tempe, Arizona incident uh, was changing in that conversation. And I will say that we had a relationship with Uber previous to that incident, and we have our relationship after that incident. And I, and what I, changed? And I think what changed is that Uber realized that they need the public to buy in, right? I think initially, and I don't mean to, to, to pick on this firm, I think all the firms that were dealing in this area thought that just that's like we've seen rideshare, right? Where they came in very aggressive and we said, we don't care if you like us or not. We are here and this is what we're doing. We don't care if, uh, you know, we're allowed to be here or not. We're here. And that is very different than how I would describe our relationship now. And our relationship now is is very, um, you know, I hate to use the word over and over again, but it is very collaborative. It is very back and forth. They understand what is important to us, which is safety and communicating that safety to the public. And there's a way that we need to do that and to do it as transparently as possible. They understand that the better we're able to do that, the better they are able then to develop their technology and get buy-in from the public. Because what good is their technology if no one trusts it and no one's going to use it, right? It is a um, consumer-driven technology, and they need the consumer uh, to be alongside them. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Courtney, I'm wondering, is, is the secretary being modest here and, and she has some way of, uh, of scaring these companies who might want to treat this like the Wild West that, that they aren't doing in California? No, I, I would definitely say the secretary is not scary. <laughs> absolutely not. And I think that, again, the collaborative approach of having that open conversation, and I know for the voluntary guidance, you were in conversation with every single tester. And I don't think that any of the, the testers that are in the state, they're five, uh, maybe six, including Carnegie Mellon, uh, but, you know, five commercial testers, they don't want to see anything bad happen on the street. That's going to hurt 
their firm directly. So having this real conversation about how can we test, how can we be flexible, how can we work with the DOT to not have these regulations that don't make any sense, like measuring disengagement and numbers of miles traveled, how can we focus on that safety rather than on that safety conversation rather than these, you know, um, again, these metrics that don't necessarily make sense. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that doesn't often get talked about, and it happened here in Pennsylvania, and I imagine it happened in other states where Uber was testing, Uber was extremely proactive with us after Tempe. Uh, we were, we were, we had a good relationship beforehand. I don't mean to, to make it sound like it was not a good one beforehand. But afterwards, there was a, a patience, there was an understanding, and they up front, we didn't ask them, but they up front said, we will not go back on your roads until you're comfortable. So that is what really allowed us to have that full conversation of what will make us comfortable to have you on our roads. What is it that we need you to show us before we we will invite you back on our roadways? And it was a conversation. I mean, now it seems so normal. But back then, that was a really good question, right? How do we prove that they are safe? And that was a very complex question. In fact, at last year's summit uh, here in Pennsylvania, that was probably the question got, that got discussed the most in every single panel, is how do we prove that it's safe? And in addition to that, the other um, conversation that I found um, very interesting was how do you prove that the driver, which is required in Pennsylvania, is paying attention? Huh. How do you prove that that driver is doing what what they need to do and not being distracted um, and you know and not thinking about something else and not ready to put their hands on the wheel and not ready to hit that button? How does that button work? Is that button going to work in the time that we expect? I mean, there were so many questions related to that. And, and, and that was um, discussed. And it was only a year ago. And now look where we are. Now we have um, safety standards that we're looking at and uh, talking to others and developing in a, in a national way. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I clearly I think everyone has seen, right, how this, this incident changed everything for, for every part of this, this conversation. Um, and certainly one hopes that, you know, that was the incident that changed everything and, and we won't have to have more. Realistically, though, there are there's a good chance that something will happen. I'm wondering, um, has the state made certain preparations for that? Is there a, a game plan if if something like that were to happen? Um, will it be just sort of on a case by case, circumstance, you know, circumstantial basis? How, how do you think about the possibility of, of something like that happening in your state? Okay, first of all, we know what's going to happen, right? It's not if it's going to happen; it's when is it going to happen. Uh, we want to be as prepared as possible. Um, a lot of that is education. Um, it was discussed uh, earlier today, you know, 100 accidents a day, right, on our roadways. And one day, one of them may be from an automated um, uh, a vehicle, a car using automated or connected uh, technology, and that might be the reason, right? And that will still be one accident versus the other 100 that have happened that day. And so we have to do, um, and I'm not saying, you know, that life is, 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 is valuable and any fatality, you know, any number over zero is unacceptable. And we have to work toward getting that number toward zero. But we have to look at it in perspective. Nothing will be perfect. But we know that this is going to uh, improve, and we know this is the future of transportation. 
I, for one, am very happy that this is the future of transportation because it's getting us to a safer transportation network and it's getting people to where they need to be in a safer way. But there are going to be um, those incidents. And again, we have to be careful at how we talk about them, how we compare that to um, accidents um, in, in more um, typical, stereotypical ways, um, traditional um, vehicle ways. And um, as was discussed today, which was a very eye-opening fact for me, when we start to have that combination of human-driven cars with AV and CA, heavily CAV cars, that crossover is going to cause accidents that we don't know about. And possibly um, that number that we're seeing now, that 100 accidents a day, could go up before it starts to go down. And we have to... We have to educate people to anticipate that may happen. I hope it doesn't, but it could. And I just want to add, and as you may not know about this, just a contrast. In the city of Pittsburgh, where I'm based out of, Mike Pittsburgh is a large advocacy group. Um, and I've worked with them for years. They actually had, there's all these vehicles that have been testing in Pittsburgh. They come out, they have about uh, over 5,000 members. They sent out a survey of, uh, you know, bicycle and pedestrian AV interactions. And it was really surprising the first year, what they found was that cyclists felt safer around autonomous vehicles. And I can tell you, when I was riding my bike to Carnegie Mellon every day and passing the many, many Ubers, I knew that they had, you know, an extra driver in their car and they had all of these other sensors all along them. So there's, there's sort of both sides of that coin, where you know that there's all of the sensors that are going to detect you, but there's just those extra things. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, and that's fascinating because uh, cyclists and, and pro-cycling advocates and sort of AV and, and really just car people in general don't always see eye to eye politically. So it's interesting that even given those differences, um, they still feel safe around autonomous vehicles. That's that's really interesting. I, I, I did note, though, um, uh, Someone, someone mentioned earlier that the state does have um, an AV incident response plan. Um, I'm curious, Secretary Richards, could you just tell us a little bit about that? Um, uh, well, we're, we're developing it. Oh, here. Developing. Yeah, okay. uh, we were talking about ca what California is doing mm -hmm. and how California is collecting the data, and that tends to be the data that we're using because it's the one being collected, and that's how they're collecting it. And so we need to take a look at how we are collecting the data. That is part of our relationship with the testers, and we're we are we are working on that right now. There is data that's coming to us, and we try to do it in a consistent way so that all the firms are providing the same type of data. Um, there's there's very common data that's being collected right now, like um, the, the VIN number of the vehicle that's out there, like what type of technology is, is there, the driver, you know, things that you would expect to, to, to be collected. Um, but getting down into details, we do have an autonomous vehicle task force right now that is pulling that together and figuring that out. And we will be very transparent about it um, once that's decided on, but it's in development right now. Um, but hopefully, if we're here next year or even sooner than that, we'll be able to share the details on that. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I know uh, some of electric vehicles, right, like first responders have really had to learn a lot about, about what the right way to approach that is because it's very different. Um, yeah. Courtney, uh, the Secretary is, as you mentioned, a planner. Um, and, you know, we've sort of been alluding to several times sort of how broad-based 
discussion is here. And um, one of the things I love about talking to you is that you just know you know everybody, first of all, in Pennsylvania, it seems like. Um, but also you have, you know, contacts in just all these different stakeholders, whether it's cyclists, right, which people don't think of as a, a constituency, um, you know, that are stakeholder in, in AV development, but, but they really are. Um, how, how has that, that sort of broad-based conversation started to come together? I mean, we've been here watching it sort of evolve for a while. Um, where, where does that come from? Because it doesn't seem like every state has that sort of sophisticated, you know, multi-stakeholders from all different kinds of, of areas, whether it's planners, cyclists, uh, you know, first responders, um, and AV developers. Again, I think it's down to what's going on in, from, from my perspective, being in the city of Pittsburgh, yeah. Pittsburgh-centric, uh, but there's also, I'll build on that, but we we have a lot of the talent in Pittsburgh, so we have a lot of the testers that are staying there, like Uber, ATG, and obviously the, the five other ones, and really having the universities that are in those areas and even partnering with Penn State and UPenn. Um, I should mention Carnegie Mellon, uh, USDOT University Transportation Center, I can never say it, it's still a mouthful for me, uh, is in partnership with the uh, University of Pennsylvania and the Community College of Allegheny County. So there's, a, there's been a huge collaboration in the research that's going behind, um, behind the AV technology, and that specific UTC uh, with those, the consortiums of those universities are, are tasking themselves to deploy in the real world. So there's, those conversations have been going on for a long time. So the, the public here or the public uh, road managers have an understanding, have a better understanding, I think, than perhaps what happened in California where they just dropped in. We've had, uh, you know, planner conferences. The American Architectural Foundation has come in and we've had all of these conferences with economic developers and uh, again, the planners and just bringing those people together, planning ahead about and, and thinking about AVs has been going on. I feel like since 2000, you know, I started at Carnegie Mellon in the in the, this industry in 2013, the beginning of 2013, and just the conversation has changed so much. And it's been really about beating the drum and talking about it and getting it out there. And we. In Pennsylvania, we've done a really good job of talking to the public and, and inviting them in. Yeah. Well, I mean, absolutely right to the conversation just in the last two years. I and mean, if you think about what the conversation around ABs was like two years ago versus today, um, things have happened. Like, things have evolved a lot. And um, it is, I, I think you, that it makes a ton of sense that, like, having that conversation uh, for longer, right, will, will, that conversation will evolve more and become more sophisticated, and you build those relationships that probably help. Kind of like teenagers and <laughs> teens. Yeah. And I do think that's important to note because, you know, the, the testers that started out here, you know, in Carnegie Mellon here in Pennsylvania, those relationships have taken turns and gone in different directions with, with officials and leaders in the public over time. But so it's, it's sort of like, you know, any relationship work it out and work through it. And that's, it's been interesting, even with the city of Pittsburgh, um, they sort of, I think, modeled the Pittsburgh principles in that same collaborative spirit that, that PennDOT had um, the volunteer guidance, where they were able to get all of these testers around the table to discuss what, how they could develop a relationship and formalize it informally. You know, they don't have to, they don't have to submit a bunch of data that, you know, is, you know, all of their LIDAR scans and all, you know, it's all about how many cars do you have on the road? 
It's not this deeper data, but no one was having that conversation. So, I mean, just being able to get them around the table, because a lot of the CEOs are here, um, again, has allowed us to take that position. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the fascinating things with AV policy is just, like, figuring out what should be done at what level, right? And um, I'm just curious, Secretary Richard, just kind of at a high level, um, where do you see the state playing a role versus, like, cities? Uh, and then also maybe the, the federal government as well. Well, obviously we have to, you know, work alongside with, with our cities. Uh, but I do want to emphasize the fact that testing is not just being done in our cities here in Pennsylvania. Um, the, the State College, the Penn Start um, testing track that we're putting together now that we will be able to test high-speed vehicles, we'll be able to look at platooning, we'll be able to look at um, connectivity with different assets, with different um, pieces of our transportation infrastructure, we'll be able to look at intersection movements and high-speed turns. Um, that is going to be very exciting for us, and that is going to be drawing people from all different states and all different countries as well. We've had a lot of interest as well as the companies that make um, you know, guide rail that makes traffic signals um, that, that, that work with the technology there. And so it is not, you know, I know we talk a lot about Pittsburgh, which is wonderful, um, and, and Philadelphia, uh, but it is happening in, in a lot of places. Uh, the Lehigh Valley is where we're very interested, where we're seeing all of these um, warehouse distribution centers pop up, right? We're seeing FedEx, UPS, Amazon. And uh, it has brought freight and traffic uh, volume as well as, as patterns that we did not foresee. And it is coming up in ways that uh, planners could not get ahead of it. First of all, some of these counties, some of these municipalities don't have formal planning um, employees uh, on, on full-time. And the business models of these warehouse um, uh, firms are, you know, we locate where we where we can get, you know, the, the land the cheapest, where we can build out what we need to build out, and where we can have um, truck routes, right, traveling two to four hours a day and reach the majority of our customers. So they're not coming out um, at the right place, and in fact, they are entering onto our roadways in, in very dangerous and um, in, in areas that don't make sense to a lot of people, right? You have trucks coming from one area, and then you have them um, from another area where we, we weren't able to plan to make sure the access is as neat and, you know, as, as, as we would have liked to have designed. So I just want to make sure that the, the conversation is not just, you know, in our urban areas, right? Um, and then as far as where I think we should be is I think we need to work alongside, obviously, the cities, the counties, the municipalities, um, alongside other businesses, not just the businesses that are in this, in this business only. And, and again, just listening to them. What is it that they need? What is it that they can do? We have had conversations, um, with cities who wanted to, who wanted to adjust the speed limit. Right, for autonomous vehicles. And so we've had that conversation, how that can be very dangerous when you are specifying what a speed limit should be and that may be lower than what that area was designed for, than what, um, you know, uh, people-driven cars can go at. You don't want your AV cars going at a different speed than, than the cars being driven by people. And you don't want those types of scenarios. So we have to have those conversations that I would call an educational conversation we had with cities. 
first of all, they have to understand that setting speed limits is not something that a city does. If they do have to work uh, with their state DOT to do that. And there are a lot of um, reasons why a speed limit is set at a certain a certain speed. And so we have to take that into consideration and have those conversations so they fully understand what it is that they control and they fully understand what the state DOT controls and how we can, you know, work best together. And that will happen in rural areas as well, where we're going to see platooning, where we're going to see other issues. One of the issues that came up in one of our um, more rural areas is when platooning is allowed, and we have um, large, uh, you know, large trucks carrying heavy weights following each other very closely. Um, what does that do to our bridges? And what does that do to the amount of weight that our bridges can sustain? Because they were not designed to take uh, multiple tons of loads so quickly, and 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 the traffic and the and the weight load of a platooned vehicle is very different than how we design them. So these types of conversations, and there's a hundred other conversations like that. Those just happen to be the popular ones of the moment, but I'm sure there's a lot of other design issues that we're going to have to address that uh, will be coming into play. Yeah, no, that's that's really fascinating. Um, you know, obviously development and mobility go hand in hand. Um, and you know, if you think about it, right, right, just having trucks coming onto roads, uh, even with human drivers, that's that can be a, a, a dangerous and, and tricky challenge for uh, for planners to address, right? But then when you think about the fact that, you know, uh, a lot of those logistics companies are where it seems like autonomy may get sort of its first its first toehold, then you have sort of this, you know, uh, coming together of sort of autonomous vehicle policy and, and planning. Um, because, right, if, if it's dangerous when humans are doing it, it's going to be difficult and dangerous when, when, when robots are doing it too, right? Inevitably, especially at the start. Uh, Courtney, are there other like um, specifically planning uh, uh, related issues around AVs um, that sort of seem to be a little bit closer in timeline uh, or a little more pressing maybe um, like trucks? I, I would say, well, first I want to thank the secretary for bringing up the fact that there is so much, I would say like the Venn diagram, the, the AV industry, you know, we're the keystone state. So we do have a Penn Start, which was talked about earlier, that test track that we can actually test how these, um, you know, freight vehicle transit when it becomes AV, if it does, uh, just how they interact with the street. I think in terms of planning, um, from my perspective, thinking about urban areas, really thinking about how do you actually communicate with pedestrians? How do you communicate with cyclists? So, you know, going back to that cycling survey, one of the things that cycling advocacy organizations nationally are talking about is actually the eye contact that the cyclist will make with the driver. And that's really important to think about. So how does that communication uh, happen yeah. moving forward? And that's not necessarily how planners are trained to think about planning, but that, you know, we're, we're, we're moving to a digital platform of infrastructure. So really thinking about that. And I also think um, thinking about land use is really going to be important. Uh, I think because AVs are disrupting and connected and automated vehicles and ride sharing and scooters and everything is disrupting the transportation system right now. It's how can we reprioritize the modes? Yeah. And that's a really big planning piece that municipalities and cities and rural areas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the last thing I would say to, try to think about is 
we're moving towards the boomer generation becoming, you know, the largest part of our population becoming elderly. So thinking about elder care and how we can move those people around who are, are sort of isolated in, in these non-urban environments. Yeah. Yeah. So I mentioned um, sort of new and different modes, and Victor Richards, um, we were uh, speaking earlier here at the conference, and uh, you mentioned just how central public transportation is to everything that that you do here. And I noticed um, that there is a bill. This was also mentioned um, earlier in the sort of introduction to the um, to the summit, um, HB 1078, uh, that addresses low speed autonomous shuttles, and that's sort of a new mode. And there's some interesting. Uh, potential there for for public transit specifically. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, what 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 does this bill generally um, address? Like, what are the what what needs to happen from a policy perspective for these ta uh, uh, for low speed uh, AV shuttles to come? And then also, what is like the the opportunity for for this kind of specific mode? Yeah, so low speed autonomous uh, shuttles allow us several things. First of all, there's a lot of space that are not out on the forefront of this technology. Either they haven't invested in the past or there's not a comfort level. Maybe their governor, their general assembly is just not ready for them. They might see it um, as, as not something they want to invest in. Now, look, all of us are, are underinvested in dealing with funding issues, and you have to be willing to spend money um, on this technology. However, I do not know any state that is not interested in hosting an autonomous shuttle or at least discussing it and considering it, you don't need to have the other pieces of this technology moving forward to test the shuttle. And I also think that these shuttles are going to be a huge um, piece of information and a huge way in how the public becomes comfortable with this technology. First of all, the slow speed that it travels at, it is much easier to get comfortable with the technology that is traveling at 20 miles an hour, 25 miles an hour. Um, and it slowly is moving through your neighborhood. It slowly is moving, um, you know, for us, it would have to be on a private road the way that uh, the, the, the current law allows. So it would be, um, you know, it would be on a campus maybe, right, getting students from one area of the campus to another area of the campus. It could be at an entertainment or an amusement park type of thing where it gets people from a parking lot to, uh, you know, the beginning of, of, of a ride. It could be um, we're looking at uh, possibly you know, state park use, right, and, and, and public uh, land use. What this bill will do is will give us more flexibility so that we may not have to be limited to where these shuttles are allowed to occur. And uh, we are definitely looking at uh, different, uh, again, different instances where we can showcase this. And and in instances that are not like a Pittsburgh, right, that are not in areas that have them going on right now. We're looking at areas um, in central Pennsylvania where these make sense. But we're also looking, we just don't want them to uh, not have um, use, you know, usefulness to them. We're looking how can we get employers, uh, employees to their employment? How can we... Um, help businesses, right, with, with what they need. How can we get people to access transit as well as if they take transit? How can we finish that last first mile for them? So we want it to have a use. We don't just want to put it out there and, and, and have it um, just, you know, we don't want it to just be for show. Yeah. And there's so many instances where we can show all of those things, and, and that's what this bill is going to allow us to do. Yeah, no, that's really interesting because it, it has seemed to me um, that, 
at least some cities and, and some people have observed Russia towards these these shuttles. Um, it has seemed for show. And what's interesting is you mentioned the educational aspect of that. I, I it honestly hadn't even occurred to me that that is a really good way to sort of like lower those public barriers to acceptance. Um, and uh, that's I, it's like one of those things now. I'm like, how did I? How was that not so obvious, right? Um, that's that's really fascinating. I, I've been in several of them, and I will say my first instance. I personally was not as nervous, right? There, there, I've been in, in autonomous shuttles in other states, no steering wheel at all. In fact, there's not even a front of the shuttle. You, you don't know that the, the seating is around the entire per, inner perimeter of the shuttle. And, um, and moving at 25 miles per hour, I have to say it's a really comfortable ride and everyone's taking a look and seeing what's going on. It's very different than when I um, was in other uh, automated uh, vehicles being tested, even in the Carnegie Mellon um, car, which, which was going faster than that and was on a roadway with school buses coming at us and other things that, you know, I could, I could feel, you know, my heart racing as certain, uh, certain um, in, you know, uh, uh, situations were coming at us. Uh, but this autonomous shuttle is much, you know, it's, it's much calmer. Yeah. Courtney, uh, the secretary just mentioned something that I've been hearing more of uh, all the time, which is employers getting more involved in, in the, the mobility, the transportation for their workers. Um, is that something that, that you're seeing sort of on the rise here and, and sort of what are the, the big opportunities there? I think I'm definitely seeing a big issue with mobility of people just getting around where they need to go. So like the secretary was saying, if you could plug in some of those gaps, with a V shuttle. So for example, I'm working on and I I'm working on a project, I should say I've not been brand it yet, but we're working on a project where we're looking at night shift workers and using microtransit to help, you know, these uh, night shift workers who normally have to take two to three bus lines to get to the hospital and work. And typically a lot of them are female and they don't feel safe. Um, and we were talking about, you know, using the paratransit vehicles at night when they're not in use. But the issue is you can't get drivers to drive that shift. And so if you do, you have to pay a really high premium and then you're dealing with sleep issues and you know overtime. So that might be a really interesting use case where the employer is saying, I have this huge turnover cost that's costing me, you know, cost corporations, I think it's $37 billion a year in turnover rates. So there's a huge incentive for employers to get involved now. And there's a lot of, you know, just as demographics change and people are moving out to the suburbs, or, you know, maybe getting pushed out to the suburbs as, you know, urban real estate prices increases. Uh, so, you know, while we should be building for density, these AVs and, you know, there's opportunities to help get those people to work. Yeah. And there's a whole class of stakeholders that can be brought into the conversation uh, sort of around, like, real, you know, not sort of idealistic stuff necessarily, although there's an opportunity to do idealistic stuff, but their incentives are are, are real and material and but also aligned with some of these these future changes. Um, uh, well so having just uh, published a book about Tesla, I have to, to ask one question and, and it's really I I don't want to make it about Tesla because it isn't about Tesla. It's a much bigger issue than just Tesla. They just happen to embody it right now. I'm just curious, um, so you know this is a company that says that um, their vehicles will be fully self-driving, uh, supposedly next year, by the end of this year, maybe kind of changes. But um, I'm just curious as like, you know, the person responsible for, for transportation and safety in this, in this state, 
how do you how do you feel about the possibility of because it seems like the regulations are all not just in in, in Pennsylvania but the whole sort of environment around uh, AVs is, is oriented at, at companies who are building sort of level four vehicles for fleets for like robo taxis or trucking or, or specific things and nobody nobody else is talking about putting full autonomous technology into the hands of consumers and I'm wondering you know it is you know, are states ready? Is Pennsylvania ready to deal with that? Or is that, is that the federal government's problem? I'm just curious how you think about, about a company saying they want to put full autonomy into the hands of, of consumers in privately owned cars. It's an interesting question. Tim, because I don't know that much about Tesla. I actually lived just recently in a Tesla and was fascinated by their whoopee cushion app. I thought that was pretty amazing. That you can have a whoopee cushion around to any seat, and it sounds like that person has... Uh, <laughs> Innovation is amazing, yeah, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I won't say it, but, yeah, uh, but uh, I thought that was that was pretty cool. Um, but where where is Tesla now? Like, what what level are they at now? What, what is their highest level? Because I wasn't aware that they were that far along. Yeah, no, I mean, they, so autopilot, they currently say is, is level two. Um, and so it requires human, uh, you know, uh, uh, monitoring at all mm -hmm, times. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they're they a little bit confusing about it, right? Where they say it's going to be level five, but it's going to need monitoring for a while. And then it's not. Um, and they say that next year uh, in 2020 will be the point where they, they feel they're predicting that they feel that it will reach a point where they no longer will require uh, their customers to monitor it, which implies, you know, either level four, or level five. Um, and so just, again, like there's obviously, right, like I'm personally very skeptical that we'll ever even get there. So this is very much a hypothetical, but like, right, as, a, as someone with your responsibility, you have to like think about those, what if, right? Like, so... I, and again, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just—it's just a really no. It's a—it's a good question, and I want to give it uh, the thought it deserves. I—I uh, I also am skeptical that you can go from a level two to a level. You know, I would hope they would get to level five before they would let people not monitor. I mean, to me, that just doesn't sound uh, the way that we should be moving forward here. And to go from two to five. I mean, we can't. Even, we're, we're trying to go from two to three, um, and that is hard enough. So I, I I'd be very interested in, in where they think they will be and how they will be there, and and how their technology will work, and will they need? I mean, just just to break it down to something so simple. I mean, will they need certain widths of line paint, and for them to to um, maneuver in the safest way possible. And how is that going to go from state to state? And, and I know that's like the simplest thing that, uh, and, and it goes much deeper than that, but something as simple as that could, could cause a problem. And so we need to take a look at that. Yeah, it, it sounds like maybe they aren't really part of your state's conversation around these issues. I can say Tesla is not someone I have spoken to personally, nor are they, um, someone that we have a signed agreement from. I, I, will, I will add, though, that you talked about it at the AD task force level, because it's been interesting. Joshua Brown, who was the first person in a fatal Tesla accident, he was making these YouTube videos about driving around. Uh, in, I wasn't even, full self-driving wasn't even named then. Mm -hmm. He actually went to, to high school in Westmoreland County, high school. Mm -hmm. So he's a Pennsylvanian, interestingly. And what, you know, talking to people that are working in the legislature, basically, if there was a Tesla crash today, 
there's there's no there's no policy around how you would charge that driver or the car. How would that how would that happen? And you would essentially have to use um, like drunk driving, like reckless driving as the charge. So how do you you know how do we start to think about that? And even in Pennsylvania, defining what is the autonomous vehicle sort of as we transition towards you know we have more ADAS, 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 and then all of a sudden, if they be really having to define that in the code. So I think also, I would say personally, and you brought Tesla, I think, into my view a lot more. Um, you know, working with you at, at the drive and, and following your work, uh, we are not Silicon Valley, so there are not Teslas yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Um, and and I don't know, are they, you don't see a lot of them here. I saw one on the way up here. Mm. Um, and we got excited about it, right? Because it doesn't happen. It happened to have a vanity plate, which we thought was very interesting. So we were talking about the vanity plate. We were talking about the Tesla. I mean, for us here in Pennsylvania, when we see one, it's still unusual. It still sparks excitement for those of us who find this technology um, pretty exciting. Yeah. And I do think it has moved definitely electrification and, and it has moved other advances in transportation in a way that no other company has. And I'm really glad that they're in the space that they are in and, and, and bringing these very important topics up to light. Um, but as far as getting a fully autonomous vehicle within a year, um, you know, I don't see it. Yeah. No, and I mean, we keep talking about the conversation, and mm -hmm. that seems to really have been the core of the success here. I think for me, that's the the either strange or scary thing about Tesla is that if they are as far along as they are, why aren't they doing the conversation? Right? That, that's the part I don't understand. I feel like that, like, Elon Musk's approach is just to, like, taunt <laughs> that, that he can do these signal to policymakers and to the public, like, I'm going to do this with or without you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, it's a little bit of a troll. It's a bit of a choice. Oh, yeah. uh, it takes one to know one, yeah. Beautiful vehicles, yeah. great with EVs. But, I mean, I think the full self-driving is an education issue. Yeah. Really? It is an issue. I, I saw a video with Elon Musk in it many years ago. And it was very fascinating. It was about a lot of the work he's doing. It was, you know, it was about SpaceX. It was about um, Hyperloop. It was about, um, it wasn't about Tesla, interestingly enough. But in his interview, I couldn't help but notice his T-shirt, and his T-shirt said, safety third. <laughs> and I could not, you know, it really took my breath away. But that is how he thinks, and that is how they've been able to advance certain things. True. Now, a state DOT cannot afford to think safety third. Uh, safety first, right? It was mentioned uh, this morning that it shouldn't even be a priority because it should be the foundation that we're all working on, right? Priorities can change and safety at the forefront can never change. And so that's how I think of, of Elon Musk, right? If he's thinking safety third, I'm going to be a little hesitant um, working with him. And it, and it is why, and it's a topic for another time and maybe another podcast, but it's why we are where we are on Hyperloop as well and why other states may um, have, uh, you know, um, locked arms with him and, and are going a little faster. I just have uh, a hesitation with someone who considers safety third. Absolutely. So I really want to um, bring uh, some audience participation into this. We don't do this a lot on the Autonicast, so this is your your chance to come on the show. Um, uh, but really quick, actually, just uh, before we do that, I just want each of you to like very briefly, what is the biggest challenge facing Pennsylvania right now in regards to, to preparing for ABs? 
One more tough one. Just now, I, I, I do think um, it is the communication with our public, right? It, it sounds like it's really simple, but it's not simple. It's very complicated. And with that communication, it's also communication with our elected officials. We do need certain regulation, right? Even though we are coming at it from a policy standpoint, what we've decided to do and, and we learned uh, we had a large uh, AV bill in front of our General Assembly, and we could get nowhere with it. We had to break it down into pieces. Just this last session, we passed our first um, uh, our, our, our first regulations. Uh, one is dealing with you know platooning and, um, and and getting that type of testing out on our roads, and the other is automated work zones. Uh, where we can have our crash trucks and uh, and, and protecting uh, the people who who keep our work zones safe um, and moving that forward and and we were able to break that off because it was something that we could get um, buy in right we couldn't get buy in and removing you know or even the discussion of whether there should be um, a steering wheel or not in a car right we couldn't get any type of consensus moving towards some of these tougher issues. And uh, so we've decided to move ahead in that way. And that's also our autonomous shuttle um, uh, work as well in that house bill. It's where we can get the interest and we realize that we are going to have to do this like one, one bite at a time, one step at a time. Um, but again, it's educating people, letting them understand. And with that goes to your earlier question, having them understand that there are going to be crashes, that there are going to be accidents, so that when it happens, it doesn't put this um, technology on hold, that it keeps moving forward. Yep. Uh, well, I was going to say public education. <laughs> I was going to go on and say, I think what we really need to be thinking about as organizations or, or people, road managers, that are managing infrastructure also need to be thinking about digital transformation. So there's a huge telecom piece to this that needs to come into play depending on which which company rolls out. Um, you know, even moving with uh, connected and automated vehicles, really thinking about that. And also with that digital transformation of, of infrastructure, also thinking about organizational transformation on the digital level. So making sure that DOTs and the municipalities have the capacity and understanding to you know, collect the data or have, have a third party turn it into information for them or have a database of permits, um, but really having the, the backbone to, to deploy uh, any policies that are put forward and, and for pilots. Yeah. All right, so we'll open it up to the floor. We have a floating microphone right over here. Raise your hand if you'd like to ask our guests a question. And, and please say your name, just real quick, identify yourself. Yeah. Hello, my name is Jan Hussar. I'm the Communications Director for Pentagon. So I'm very interested in hearing over and over again during this summit about communication to the public as, as the center experts. What do you think the public should know about automated vehicles? And how do you think we should tell them? I'm going to jump in first because I have done a lot of public interaction with uh, specifically the Carnegie Mellon uh, autonomous vehicle, the test vehicle, and with legislatures. I think people just don't understand the technology and how it works. Um, just no concept of what what are the what, what is lidar, what is radar, um, you know how do you know what what is um, collision warning. 
what is you know driver monitoring, all of these, all of the technologies that are in uh, a vehicle or going to be coming into a vehicle, just no understanding of that whatsoever. Um, I take it for granted that I understand these things, but someone in rural Pennsylvania is not going to have the slightest idea, and we'll just have these perceptions that it's congested or something along those lines. So really breaking down what the technology is, how it works. And I think another piece is sort of how in the transition period, um, forgive me, and this is, does not have uh, a steering wheel, but you know, all the vehicles that do, how does it take over? And what is that, what is that, what does that mean? I just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, really quickly because, I, you know, I've been promoting um, my book that just came out and uh, someone has been booking some, like, local radio appearances for me and stuff. And it, and it kind of blew me away. We discussed a bunch of different sort of angles to discuss on the book. And, and the one that, like, got the most response by far was, like, was the question of automated driving. Like, when, you know, are, are these here? Do Teslas drive themselves? What, you know, what's going on with this? Like, there's a lot of, of legitimate confusion, right? Like, even, even among those of us who pay a lot of attention to this. And so I think, like, just the appetite is definitely there. Um, and uh, it was funny because I feel like I almost ended up promoting uh, at PAVE, the Partnership for uh, Automated Vehicle Education, more than I did my book on these radio shows because... Uh, because, I mean, it's just people, people don't know. And, and, and even just the simplest sort of like bits of information about this stuff um, are fascinating to them because they're just, there's not like, this stuff is not being communicated sort of on a really mass scale. Yeah, I think we have to do, um, uh, we have to do the best that we can so people aren't scared of it, right? Because when people are scared of it, they don't want to know about it. They don't want, you know, they're, they're not interested. Thoughts on that, you know, where we can make an algorithm that can react to any known situation, but it's a very interesting idea, and I'm just wondering what you would think of that. It sounds like an easy developer question. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I personally have never thought of that, and I don't mean to be, you know, um, you know, joking about that, but I think everybody is pretty happy that this technology is not up to me, right? I am very fortunate that I get to lead an agency that uh, is out in front of that and where we have real technical experts that are that are looking at things like that. But I am amazed when I do sit in rooms where, where topics like that are being discussed, I'm amazed at how complex the act of driving is. And I'm amazed at how many decisions our minds make at, at one time. Some of us do it better than others. Um, but it is amazing to me all of the different things that the robots, or I'm not sure what to call them, but it's robotics, right? Um, what they have to um, understand, right, and, and AI that they have to get better at and how quickly they have to make those decisions. So in many instances where I've been in rooms where they're having this conversation, the robots are, are instantaneously able to make those decisions, right, better than humans. But as far as taking, um, you know, taking an assessment of the hundred different things that need to be decided on, that's where we're, we're, we're figuring it out. And the way you come up on a certain area and, um, you know, I might think of a hundred things, but Courtney may come up in that intersection and she might think of 200 different things, right? And, and so it is, it is, it's, it's really complex. As far as how, how, how it's being developed, I, I can't comment.
you know, one of the things I, that this brings up that I think is really interesting that I'm seeing in my world is um, I was just invited to be on this board called the Partnership for the Partnership to Advance Responsible Technology. So we're really seeing uh, a new niche grow, which is uh, ethicists, right? Ethicists, data ethicists um, are around the country. There's, you know, AI for Good conferences going on around the world, and really talking about, you know, how do you, you know, how do you and I, Leslie, have a firm? How can we trust that that technology is working? Because just because the roboticist said it did. And maybe they're not thinking of, you know, one of the other things that will happen with AVs is there will be social implications. There will be land use implications. So how do you start to talk about those things as well when you're talking about what, what AVs are? Um, I know for me, I, had a, I did one of those uh, TEDx talks, talks, and I had to... Simmer, like, you know, my, I wanted to download my brain and get all this information. And I basically could boil it down to three things, which is for a general audience to understand, which was, you know, parking might disappear. Uh, we need to have some sort of safety verification uh, for, the, for the algorithm uh, eventually. And we need to make sure that policy is really, really guiding us in a, in a way to, to, to ensure that it's, they are ultimately serving humans and our needs. Um, and I think that's really what we need to focus on with ADs is that they're still serving our needs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I had a, um, I'd like sort of echo what um, the secretary said in that, like, I, the first couple of times I rode an AV, of course, I was blown away by the technology itself, right? Having a vehicle drive you uh, it is an eerie and, and fascinating experience, and you can't help but, like, just be blown away by, by what it takes technically to do that. Um, but sort of once I got over that initial sort of like, wow, sort of gee whiz moment, um, it really like, I, I felt like I could start to see like how unintuitive it was, right? Like, real, like, like computers can't intuit things. They don't have kinds of social intelligence that we have. And driving is a very social task. And so um, that's obviously a huge part of the technical challenge. Uh, but it also made me really like appreciate humans, which like normally when you're driving on the road, you're like, God, people are bad drivers. But like after after writing an AV, I really did appreciate like how much how capable we are, how much capability we have. We just don't use it. Um, and actually, one of my hopes uh, is that you know if we can expose people more to this technology, yes, you know, get them accustomed to it, get over any fears, irrational fears around it. Um, but maybe it will inspire people to like think about how much better drivers they could be um, because they have these things that the computers probably will never have. Um, and uh, and the computers have to do so. Robots have to do so many like workarounds for stuff that just comes so naturally to us. So I think uh, you know, as Elon Musk said, uh, humans are underrated. And uh, and uh, hopefully, like being around robots more will, will help us understand that because it is going to be a long time before we're 100% robot. In the meantime, if we can all you know learn to use our brains better and like take driving more more seriously, um, we can also make a lot of progress and not just leave it all up to robots. I like how you said before we become 100% robot, like, you know, the transition from cyborg to, to robot. But, but one thing you said that made me laugh, and I think this is actually, again, important, is, you know, we're talking about driving being a social task. And then I, I giggled because roboticists are, are basically trying to replicate those tasks. And I have worked with many roboticists, and they're not the most social people. So they need that extra help to be, you know, they really need the public in there 
helping them think about the externalities that these things might create or filling in what, what are those edge cases they're not thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have time for one more question. Can you grab a burning one? Well, then we'll wrap it up. Secretary Richards, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's been really a pleasure to, to chat with you. Thanks for having me, and i uh, be happy to do it again. Yeah. Courtney, thanks, as always, for coming on. I uh, always wanted to talk as well. Thank you, Ed, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much. Uh, yeah, and uh, with that, we will see you here next time on another episode of the Atomic <laughs>